Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I'm welcoming back a guest, Dennis Skupinski, who's with the Michigan's Military Heritage Museum in Jackson, Michigan. In a prior show on this podcast, I talked with Dennis about Michigan's World War I history. Today, we're going to explore the fascinating topic of the Toledo War, which happened between 1835 and 1836, and the results of that event ultimately led to Michigan statehood. So welcome, Dennis. Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast today. Well, thanks, Michael, for inviting me. And I'm really looking forward to uh, educating the public on the Toledo War because most people thought, you know, like I, even I did when I first hear about it, you know, as a bunch of drunken militiamen wandering through the woods looking for each other. And it was a little bit more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so how did you first become interested in the subject of this historic boundary dispute, which became known as the Toledo War? Well, it was when I started doing Michigan's World War One Centennial about 10 years ago, I became really interested in Michigan's history because like states like California, they make it part of their education system. Like in fourth grade, you have to know about the mission system and the missions in California and Texas really promotes their statehood. You know, they have, you have to know about and you get educated in the state of Texas about Texas history. In Michigan, they do it, but it doesn't seem to be very good because I was a great history student and I don't remember learning about the you know Toledo War or Michigan statehood that much and even the, the what I was going to talk about the first thing is the great seal of the state of Michigan which you know is is sort of uh, that's what I was going to lead off with and about how interesting the Toledo War was because it's, and I went to the official state site, and it says the great seal of the state of Michigan. And then in Roman right. numerals, it has 1835. And so I, I'm reading this verbatim right from the state. It says, complete state seal. When you take away the words and board, this becomes a coat of arms for the state of Michigan. On November 1st, 1835, Michigan functioned as a state. State elected offices, constitution, all ratified by residents. And... The thing is, it said that it was adopted, you know, that the, at eight, on June 2nd, 1835, is official Great Seal of Michigan. But on the seal of the state, it says the Great Seal of the State of Michigan. In a couple of years, well, about 10 years, we're going to have the Bicentennial of Michigan. Are we going to be celebrating on 1835 or, I mean, 2035? Or are we going to be celebrating it on 2037 when we officially were into the uh, accepted into the union? Right, right. You know, and I remember... I did a little study on that, and um, they, they had to put the, the basic government together and establish a legislature and run it for a few years as per the guidelines that had been set up for the uh, Northwest Territorial right. Agreement, I think is what it was. So that was why yeah, they probably made it in 19, 1835, but there was that delay. Right. And that delay because of the and Toledo that delay War. is the Toledo War. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why I figured I wanted to start off with the seal of the state because the seal of the states is 1835 when we became functioning as a state right. 1835, but we weren't accepted into the United States until 1837. And the reason why was because of the Toledo War. We had our, you know, there was a question about our boundaries. And there was actually there a couple of reasons why it took so long. The first on a, you know, a national uh, basis 
was the states, the eastern states, were worried about the western states, you know, coming into the union because the eastern 13 states, you know, had their monopoly on what they're going to do with the U.S. government. As they started letting in western states, you start getting in people like President Andrew Jackson, who was the first person born west of the, you know, Allegheny Mountains to uh, become president of the United States. And he wasn't really well liked in uh, Washington at the time because he was a quote outsider. Right. And then you get the Southern states who, you know, if the, who want to have a slave state come in for every free state to keep the balance of power in there. Well, the Northwest ordinance of 1870, 18, 1887 wanted to have, you know, say that the, in the area where we're located, there'd be five, five to 10 states or three to five states, and it'd be non-slave states. And so, you know, you've got the, the regional power of Ohio not wanting Michigan in because of the border dispute. You've got the southern states not wanting Michigan to come in until they can get a slave state. And then you've got the eastern states not wanting to be overpowered by the western states because Michigan would be the 26th state, which is, you know, double of the original 13. So there's a number of outside factors that, you know, contributed to this, which is why this quite a lot of dynamics going on there. Yes. There's a lot of a lot of political dynamics that people probably weren't aware of. Right. And that's and when I was looking at this, I said, you know, this is a perfect example of a way to teach the history of Michigan because you get involved with so many things. You first of all you got the ordinance of seventeen eighty seven, which is talking about how new states can become part of the United States. Okay, so we got that process of statehood. Then you've got the slavery versus non-slavery states. Then you've got the east versus the west or the new states, you know, and there's and then you've got right. Michigan and, and the regional dealing with the boundaries of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. You know, and it's really a pretty right. interesting, yeah. you know, history, especially with some of the colorful people involved in it. That I mean, this would be a great way to teach Michigan history by just teaching, you know, the right. about the Toledo War. So the Toledo War it was a, it's called a war, but it was essentially a bloodless um, conflict. But it was a boundary dispute, and it's probably one of the first major boundary disputes in drawing up state lines that almost erupted into. You know, bloody conflict. Yeah, the, the, and the reason why was that in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, they said they divided the states in the Northwest Territory, which include Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin, to states below the lower, uh, the bottom of Lake Michigan, and then states above um, the bottom of Lake Michigan. Well, when they, they used a, a bad map, because they thought that the boundary would be somewhere in the middle of the um, Lake Erie for the, um, or it's actually at the top of Lake Erie if you went across from the bottom of Lake Michigan to the top of Lake Erie. But with when they finally used a real map that was accurate, they found out that no, this wasn't the case. And the problem was that Ohio at the time was looking to create a system of canals to connect to the Mississippi River and the Maumee River where Toledo is located would be part of that canal system. This is before the trains got involved. So they re Ohio really wanted to have that Maumee River and Toledo as part of their state. And, you know, the thing was Ohio at the time became a state in 1803 
and they said about they set their northern border, but it wasn't really. I mean, it was codified because they were a state, but it wasn't really bound. They didn't really have boundaries because Toledo was still considered part of Michigan territory. And then in 1817 right. or 1816, Indiana became a state, and they didn't use the Northwest Territory Northwest Ordinance because they went up about uh, was it about 10 miles north of Lake Michigan because they wanted to, the bottom of Lake Michigan because they wanted to have a port on Lake Michigan, and. You know, so this all of a sudden starts screwing up the, the southern boundaries of Michigan. And so. Right. So the, the dispute was over the what they called the Toledo Strip. Mm-hmm. And uh, people could look that up if they're curious about it. There's a lot of gra- images out there on that area of land. Um, so this whole incident almost erupted into a major conflict. Both Michigan and Ohio sent troops to stand up against each other and they didn't really want to fight but <laughs> right well this this could have been solved first of all by congress with the, the ohio statehood they could have decided okay the boundaries of ohio especially after indiana became a state because if you right. notice that indiana and ohio boundaries are not equal as far as the southern portion of michigan and right. they could yeah. have decided that wherever the boundary would have been then. So Congress didn't do their job. The president of the United States, Andrew Jackson at the time, was looking to get the electoral votes of Ohio, um, Indiana, and Illinois. So he didn't really want to mess with, you know, states as opposed to a territory which doesn't vote. And Congress didn't really, you know, was going to back the states of Ohio because they were a state as opposed to a territory in Ohio because they were a state managed to get enough states with them, you know, uh, Indiana and Illinois, to back them up, to keep Michigan from becoming a state, and also to keep it away from going to the Supreme Court and, you know, a lot of other things. And so it was really, you know, this could have been solved pretty easy. There wouldn't have been a war and there wouldn't have been a delay in statehood, but, you know, politics basically got involved and Next thing you know, you've got the governor of Ohio saying, no, we're going to do this. Michigan's boy governor says, no, we're going to do this. Both hard-headed, both going at it, trying to do one-upmanship. And, you know, I mean, it, we did have a Michigan militia march into Toledo in 1835 to try to, take, to try to prevent Ohio from performing an official act there. You know, we had like 250 militiamen, and the Ohio's, you know, they— they uh, convened <laughs> Governor Lucas told him to right after midnight hold a court of common pleas and they did and they skedaddled as soon as they could and so by the time the Michigan militia walked in you know in the, in the morning the Ohio people were already gone but they held their court they had official records of it and so they basically got away with you know a midnight co- or night court and uh, I mean, so it was sort of a gamemanship where Governor Lucas, you know, outsmarted Governor. Well, he wasn't actually governor at the time because on August 29th, President Jackson removed him from office. So he was a wow. acting. He was supposed to be an acting governor, but he was removed from office. But he didn't tell anybody. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, Stevens T. Mason was the 22 years old, acting as a territorial governor. Right. And the reason why he got this job was because his father, John Mason, was from Virginia and was 
he was uh, in businesses and he was looking for something to you know keep him busy and he wanted to do something exciting out west so he got appointed and a friend of andrew jackson became i uh, got appointed to the secretary of uh, michigan territory when and right. secretary and also acting governor the governor at the time governor porter didn't really wasn't around too much and and so you know so the acting governor be, actually became the governor well um, Stephen's uh, dad, John, didn't really care for the Western life after a year, so he resigned, and they were impressed with the way uh, Stevens was helping his dad out, and they sort of, Andrew Jackson sort of looked at him as a sort of a son and appointed him at, 20, at 19 years old to become the Secretary of Michigan and acting governor. With the governor away most of the time, he became the governor of the state of Michigan for about three years until 1834 oh. when you know um, the governor passed away and then the senate didn't want to it was deadlocked as far as appointing a new governor so he stayed as acting governor till 1835 and that's you know when statehood uh -huh. came and the war started yeah didn't he also get reelected as governor after the state it yes. became a state for a short time well what happened was after they invaded toledo in september of uh, 1835 with the michigan militia you know and they could they could they didn't get the ohio judges or officials so they marched back to detroit and they had a constitutional convention in october and, and they passed and they ratified the um constitution they had elections on October 5th and he became and he was elected governor of the state of Michigan and also the Constitution of Michigan passed on October 5th so even yeah. in um, President Jackson did send out a replacement on September 19th but after Stevens was elected on October 5th there wasn't really any job for the you know a territorial governor now that we had a constitution and an elected governor you know, but the question was, who was in charge? Was it the elected governor or the one appointed by the president for the territory? So, wow, yeah, that's interesting dynamic <laughs> there, too. And all these little things that just make it so interesting. I mean, you know, it's a yeah. great civics and history lesson because there are so many things in play at the time. And you, know, you can really see where the politics between, you know, the states, between the north and south, east and west all played into this yeah and andrew jackson okay so it, it starts broiling andrew jackson stepped in but he was his interests were to make sure ohio succeeded in their claim on that strip of land well, he was looking he was simply looking for votes right yeah he didn't care he didn't care yeah. which way he didn't care because he referred this to his attorney general benjamin butler and benjamin butler says you know it looks like Michigan should, you know, Michigan should get that territory. But he was only attorney general, didn't have, you know, he couldn't make law. He could just refer things. Right. And Congress was the one who could have done something, or even the president could have done something too. But, you know, he was worried about votes in Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. And Congress, well, they didn't really want to deal with it, you know. And so wow. you have the matter just sitting out in the air there. And so the two governors decided, well, you know, let's see if we can't solve this ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what what was the outcome? We basically we have these two. So both states send in their militia. They're doing some kind of a standoff. Yep. Um, and I've heard some tales about that where the militiamen were talking to each other, saying, "What are we actually doing here?" And 
neither right. neither side really wanted to fight the others. Um, you know. There was and there was some bloodshed because one of the um, leaders of the Ohio group he lives in the Toledo Strip. His name was um, Stickney, and he had a, a, an interesting family because his two sons he named them uh, one and two because he figured that when they grew older they could name themselves. <laughs> and then he named his daughter. He had a daughter that he named Indiana. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so two Stickney. They, they had an arrest warrant for him from the um, the Joseph Wood, the deputy sheriff of Monroe County, had an arrest warrant for him. So they went to the local bar where he was known to hang out, and they tried to arrest him, and uh, the deputy uh, sheriff got stabbed. So, I mean, it was a deep wound and lots of blood, but, you know, it wasn't a serious injury. Mm -hmm. So they, there was some bloodshed in the war. So it wasn't completely bloodless. So they, it was more of a bar fight type deal, or...? Yeah, well, they were trying to arrest him, and you uh, know yeah. he wasn't going to be arrested, and and you know that's, that's the whole deal. Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's more like a bar fight, <laughs> civil accident, and then it went, and there was a famous line out of it that's you know too sticky or sticky said to the sheriff, you know, said to Joseph Wood, the sh uh, deputy sheriff of Monroe, "There, damn you, you have got it now." That's what he said after he stabbed him. You oh know? yeah, and it's like you know it's. I mean, it's one of these things where you, I mean, you couldn't write a script for a movie or a play any more, you know, comical than this thing. Because one after another, or just like is that um, Two Stickney's dad, he was all in favor of supporting um, the Toledo Strip being part of Michigan mm -hmm. because with that, with them being part of Michigan, they didn't have to pay the Ohio state tax, which was a lot higher than the Michigan territorial tax. Mm -hmm. But then he found out that, you know, if, um, if Ohio builds these canal systems with the canal going through the Maumee river, you know, down to the Mississippi, et cetera, well, this could be like Buffalo and this could be a boom town and my land could be worth a lot more money. Right. So he became all of a sudden an ardent supporter of, you know, becoming, the Toledo Strip becoming an Ohio side, and you know, and he actually became one of the heroes on the Ohio side of the war. Wow, interesting! You know, basically a turncoat, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just he was just in it for the money. Like Jackson was in it for the electoral vote. Yeah, you know, Stickney was in it for the money, and a lot of other people were in it. You know, because either for the money or some other you know reason. It's yeah, they just you know, there's some vested interest somewhere in there. Interesting. Yes, there was. Okay, so that's this dispute turned into some kind of a complex legal battle that had to be finally sorted out with the territorial lines, and the solution was quite interesting and almost unexpected. Right, and one of the, one of the things was Lewis Cass was really important with this. He was a second governor of the Territory of Michigan, and he became Andrew Jackson's Secretary of War. So while all this was going on, he was feeding information to Stevens Mason, right? You know, the governor of Michigan, about what Jackson was thinking and doing, while you know. Uh, Robert Lucas, the governor of Ohio, was, you know, manipulating Congress. And so one of the things that they was brought up and, you know, they proposed was that if Toledo goes to Ohio, well, Michigan should get something. And they wanted to give them the Upper Peninsula. Right. And because as a, and everybody thought the Upper Peninsula was just a frozen tundra, you know, not worth anything. Right. But they realized that um, they realized that, you know, they should become a state. 
And uh, this was their opportunity this in late 1836 to become a state because uh, Arkansas was going to apply for statehood. So they were a slave state, and Michigan was a free state. So they eliminated that uh, free state, slave state, you know, argument. And one of the big reasons why they pushed real hard to become to accept this uh, the Upper Peninsula was because there was going to be a surplus, and if Michigan was a state. They'd get about ninety-five thousand dollars, and you know surplus payments for being a state. If they were a territory, they'd get nothing. Oh, so this was uh, the reason why they proposed that they accepted, you know, at that frozen uh, convention, which was in Ann Arbor in December of eighteen thirty-six, to accept, you know, this proposal where we'll take the Upper Peninsula, we'll give Toledo to Ohio, and we'll become a state and be done with right, it. Right. Right. But the thing was, even after that, even after Michigan became a state, there were still disputes going on up until, what, 2003, when the Supreme Court was talking about, there's a or the peninsula down by the border there that's been under dispute for the last hundred some years, whether it's Ohio or Michigan. And, and I mean, Michigan lost eventually at, in the Supreme Court, but I mean, it was still going on till like 2003. Wow. Wow. Yes, yeah, so it was like 47 miles of territory, 47 acres of territory on an island, you know, and wow. or peninsula. And it's like, man. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in the long run, uh, Michigan got the Upper Peninsula, which turned out to be not only more land than the Toledo Strip was, but it also, they discovered a lot of iron ore up there and a whole lot of other right. mining that made it, quite wealthy and profitable for the state in the long right long. about 20 years about 20 years afterwards in 18 or 1860s that they realized you know what a actually what a good deal michigan got and say they figured the loser of the toledo war was wisconsin because that probably would have been wisconsin's territory right right but they were a territory and if you know if you and they had really no say in anything so michigan was becoming a state so they you know gave it to michigan and it worked out. Wow. And so how was Indiana involved in this? I mean, I, we've talked a lot about the Ohio-Michigan conflict. Yeah, well, Indiana was important because in 1816, when they became the 17th state, they set the southern border for the western half of Michigan, which was supposed to be at the bottom of Lake Michigan. And you draw a line across to Lake Erie. Right. Well, if you look, the state of Indiana comes up, you know, on the shores of Lake Michigan, up further than the bottom. Right, right. And so by accepting that state, they sort of set precedent for Ohio, who, you know, was saying the same sort of thing. Interesting. Because it was supposed to be at that 1887 ordinance, Northwest Ordinance, was supposed to be at the bottom of Lake Michigan, but with Indiana becoming the second state to have a border higher than the um, southern point of Lake Michigan, you know, you got precedent, and it sort of, you know, legalized what Ohio was doing. Interesting. Wow. And so the Michigan got officially uh, signed and approved as a state in, what, 1837? 18, yeah, in January 1837, we were approved by Congress to become a state. But the interesting thing was, was when Arkansas, which was applying for statehood at the same time, became a slave state, they were just accepted with no conditions. Michigan, 
we would have been in 1836, but we had the condition that we had to vote and ratify that we were going to take the Upper Peninsula, you know, instead of the Toledo Strip. So that's what delayed it. But say a slave state comes in, no conditions at all. Michigan comes in, and we got a condition in order to become a state. Yeah, we have to ratify this, or we're not a state. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a few other things that also delayed Michigan statehood. I was doing some research on the cholera epidemic, and, oh, and yeah. that yep. that delayed the statehood application for almost two years because they were distracted with that whole clamp down on the state, you know, all the way from yep. Detroit over to Marshall. I mean, Marshall lost like 20 people, which was half of their population at the time. Well, then one other interesting thing, back in 1817, um, they did a survey that was appointed by the, um, they wanted to do a survey in 1812 to redo the map for the borders of, you know, Ohio and Michigan and Indiana. Right. But the War of 1812 got in the way. So in 1816, the, um, they re- redid it. And the uh, guy, the inspector, the surveyor general from the United States was Ed Tiffin, who was the first governor of Ohio. And he purposely told the surveyor, you know, repair this boundary and make sure that it comes out this way and not that way. <laughs> Wow. And so, I mean, it couldn't have been worse timing for, I mean, just all these little things you know, like that, but it couldn't have been worse timing for Michigan then. And then he wrote a report about, you know, what Michigan was like in 1817 and talking about, well, it's swampland, it's got noxious fever, barren, sandy soil. Mm-hmm. And so no one wanted to go and, you know, populate the state. They'd rather go to Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, you know, which they had better reviews on. Right, right. And so it was like, once again, Ohio versus Michigan, you know? Yeah, yeah. So there's still that. And this politics stuff, you know, eventually Lewis Cass said, no, that's wrong. And, you know, went and got the report rescinded and stuff. But by that time, the damage was already done, you know, and even if you change the report, you haven't changed all the newspapers that reported this news. So, so at the Michigan's Military Heritage Museum, do you have uh, some exhibits now on the Toledo War at the museum? No, we don't. And that's one of the reasons why I was so interested in this project, because I've, I've been trying to work on something, you know, to come up with what can we do to show people about the Toledo War, because it was actually involved with military people. I mean, we had the Michigan militia. They had General Brown called out and General Van Fleet, you know, and they raised like 250, 300, up to, at one time it was up to 1,000 or 1,200 uh, militiamen. Uh-huh. You know, from the Michigan side, and Ohio had about the same thing. And, you know, they were, Lewis Cass was secretary of the of war, so he allowed um, the Michigan militia to use federal arms, even though we were territory and federal ammunition. Wow. <laughs> Which was, an, was there's another scandal after the, you know, became, after Michigan became a state, because they weren't supposed to lend it out to, you know, territories, but he did. And they tried to get most of it back, and they got most of it back. But, you know, there's always something missing. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just like one thing after another. It was just wow. pretty interesting. You know, just that. So, so you have plans for some kind of display in the future at yes. the museum? Yes, and that was and that was the issue. Do you have some of the uniforms that they wore? 
Well, they didn't really have a uniform. Everybody okay. would just sort of, they, they were issued a, a rifle or issued a musket and, uh, you know, some powder and uh, lead. And so you basically wore whatever you wore as your civilian clothes. Some people might have had leftover uniforms from the War of 1812 or other stuff. Or right. some they had uh, some militia units that might have had uniforms. But I haven't read anything anywhere that anybody talks about having an official uniform per se right so it's more informal during that time yeah there. so it'd be yeah. you know like buckskins or you could wear the you know like the clothing of the time and you know arm somebody with a musket and a you know bag of powder and a powder horn and you know lead and interesting so tell me a little bit more about the michigan's military heritage museum what can uh, do you guys have any events or or exhibits special for the summertime here that people can come see? Well, we just opened up two on January 2nd, or July 2nd. One of them was a grant from the Michigan Humanities about Carl Detzer. And Carl Detzer was a, a soldier in World War One, World War Two, and, and also on the Mexican border and participated as a civilian in the Berlin airlift. He was also an author and wrote for he was an editor at large for Reader's Digest, mm -hmm. and so he was considered one of the largest read English authors in the world. And during World War II, he was called into service as General Marshall's fireman. Basically, wherever there was any administrative logistics screw ups, he would go there and solve the problem, such as the Middle East. Or in 1943-44, there were logistics um, shortages and stuff in Europe after they invade after the D-Day invasion, mm -hmm. and so he went in there to go and clear things up and stuff. So he was a pretty important person. So we've got, uh, I've got some papers, diaries. Is uh, we got uniforms we borrowed from the Leland uh, County Museum of from World War One and World War Two for him. Photos, some artwork. And see, and some of his books on display just to show people, you know, who this person was and how important he was to Michigan history. Yeah. And then the other display we have is um, Colonel Janet Horner, Horton. She was the first woman to become a colonel in the U.S. Army Chaplaincy Corps, and she was a Christian scientist, which makes it even rarer because. I mean, she, being the first woman to become a colonel was a big deal. Right. But to become a, from a minority sect such as Christian scientists is makes it even harder for her. So we've got her a display up. And she's the first one we've actually used QR codes for because one of our interns made a video about her. Hmm. And so we've got, we're using, we're starting to go to QR codes, trying to get a little bit more technology in our museum so you can go there with a smartphone and watch a couple minute video all about the history of Janet Horton. Oh, interesting. Well, that's great. I've been talking today with Dennis Skupinski. He's with the Michigan's Military Heritage Museum. And what are the hours of the museum, and when can people come to a tour, and how do they get a hold of you and find out more about okay. the museum, Dennis? Yeah, we're open from uh, Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday from 11 till 5. And then well, you can email us or you can uh, call us or go to our website at michigansmilitaryheritage.org. Michigan's Military Heritage Museum org, where and we're saying we can just do a Google search. You should be able to find us. Okay, great. And one other thing I was going to mention is we've just we started a project with the Veterans One group of Jackson, mm -hmm. and they're building some of these Victory Gardens for us. 
And so it's a new project as a collaboration between them and us where they're, they've got these uh, raised garden beds and they're going to be growing some uh, vegetables in there and stuff for, and they're going to give the, the stuff to the veterans in the area. But it's, but it's in, we wanted to sh- uh, partner with them because we wanted to show people what victory gardens were like during World War One and World War Two, mm-hmm. and so we're just we've got the beds up. We just started getting plants. Now we're going to be working on signage. So if you want to see what a victory garden looks like, you know it's something you can even do at home with people. And it's all about organic gardening, local sourcing, mm-hmm. and you know basically everything that you're doing now, like at Whole Foods and some of these other places. But this was done for the war effort. Wow. So I've been talking with Dennis Kupinski from Michigan's Military Heritage Museum in Jackson, Michigan. And I will put the links to the museum in the description of this podcast so that you can reach out to them and maybe schedule your own visit and keep track of the different events and exhibits that they hold at the museum. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, please be sure to leave a review on whatever app that you are listening on. And be sure to share this podcast with other people that you know. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. And you can contact me there if you have any suggestions for guests or topics that you'd like to hear about that relate to Southwest Michigan history or Michigan history in general. I'd be happy to hear from you. And you can use the contact form on the website. Once again, that's michaeldelaware.com. And until next time, when we take another journey into history and explore yet another fascinating chapter of yesterday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.